Falchar. Hello and welcome to City Breaks Edinburgh, episode 15, Food. I'm Marion Jones and thank you very much for joining me for what's going to be our penultimate visit to Edinburgh. And this time the topic is an important one, food. Listen to this. The bread and mutton are delicate, the sea affords plenty of good fish, the bread is remarkably fine and the water is excellent. That's from The Thoughts of Humphrey Clinker in Tobias Smollett's Travelogue, written in the 1770s, and a pretty good introduction, reminding one, as it does, that Scotland is the land of wonderful produce. However, listen to this, which is from the Scotsman website. Scottish food has long come under criticism for being fatty, beige and lacking in nutrition, with naughty but nice staples such as haggis, tablet and deep-fried Mars bars giving us a bad reputation. I must add that it goes on to be much more positive than that and ends with the advice that if you're going to Scotland, you really should pack a pair of trousers with an elasticated waistband. And it goes on to stress the abundance of wonderful produce that you get in Scotland. The Highland beef, the fish, Scottish raspberries, etc. Whether, they write, it's the most famous national dish of haggis, neeps and tatties or other options such as porridge, Scotch broth, Aberdeen Angus beef, smoked Scottish salmon or desserts and confectionery like Cranachan and shortbread. You can find it all in Edinburgh. So the plan for today is a run through lots of those goodies. And let's start with the national dish or at least one of the claimants to be the national dish and that's haggis. I was amused to notice that the Scotsman website helpfully explains that haggis, don't you know, isn't actually an actual living, breathing animal. The sad truth, they explain, is there is no such thing as a friendly little haggis. Okay then, so what is it? Well, it's a recipe dish which uses, I think you could describe them as, the parts of the animal which might otherwise be wasted. Here's one definition which I found. Traditionally made from sheep's pluck, the finely chopped liver, heart and lungs, mixed with oatmeal, suet, herbs, spices and seasoning, all packed into a natural casing, traditionally sheep intestines and boiled or baked. So that's the tradition, although I ought to add that these days you can even buy organic haggis, gluten-free haggis, and even, wait for it, vegan haggis. How are you going to cook your haggis? Well, there are various options. You can simmer it in water for 50 minutes per 500 grams. That's the traditional method, although you do run the risk of the casing bursting, so you need to keep an eye on that. Alternatively, you can bake it in a lidded casserole with a little bit of water. You can even, apparently, put it in the microwave. Cook on medium, say the instructions I found, for nine minutes, turning once. Whatever you do with it, once it's very hot, fish it out, cut a cross in the middle and spoon out the filling. What's it going to taste like? Crumbly sausage with a coarse, oaty texture, and you should be able to taste the warm, sort of peppery flavour. Traditionally, it will be served with neeps and tatties. That's mashed turnip and mashed potato to those of us from south of the border. You may even find a splash of whiskey sauce. In the Orkneys, apparently, it's sometimes served with something called clapshot, which is a sort of Orkneys version of neeps and tatties, made with mashed potatoes and yellow turnip. This would typically be mixed with maybe milk and some butter, perhaps some chives for flavouring, and, quote, Some recipes even include onions. Shock horror. You usually eat haggis in its own right, but you can use it as a stuffing for poultry, or you can fry pieces of it. 
and eat them for breakfast. And we must add that what haggis is mostly associated with, traditionally at least, is of course Burns Night. Why? Because in 1801, on the fifth anniversary of Robert Burns's death, his friends got together to celebrate his life. Because he had written a poem entitled Address to a Haggis, Haggis was the food which had to be served, the event was enjoyed, the event grew, and ever since, in Scotland and in places all over the world where Scottish people gather, on Burns's birthday, the 25th of January, Burns Night will be celebrated in proper style, which includes reciting his poetry, singing, drinking whiskey, and, you guessed it, eating haggis. I found a description of how events should unfold on the robertburns.org.uk website, so I'm guessing that's pretty authoritative. Quote, the haggis is generally carried in on a silver salver at the start of the proceedings. As it is brought to the table, a piper plays a suitable rousing accompaniment. One of the invited artistes then recites the poem before the theatrical cutting of the haggis with the ceremonial knife. The poem note is only one suitable for this occasion, and it is addressed to a haggis, which I looked up. It's eight verses long, perhaps slightly tricky to understand, but here anyway are the first few lines, first in the original, or my attempt at pronouncing it anyway, and then there follows a translation in more standard southern English. Okay. Fair fire your honest sonsy face, great chieftain to the pudding race. So that's good luck to you and your honest plump face, great chieftain of the sausage race. Next two lines. A boon the more you take your place, paint tripe or therm. Above them all you take your place, stomach, tripe or intestines. Weel are you worthy, o oh, a grace, a lang's my arm. Well are you worthy of a grace, as long as my arm. Then there's a long description of it, using phrases like glorious sight and warm, steaming and rich. A description of how you can eat your fill on haggis and that will compare with anything you might get abroad. The listener is reassured that there'll be nothing French about it, no garlic or anything, which would, quote, sicken a cow. And the last few lines are very rousing. Here they are in the standard English version. Old Scotland wants no watery stuff that splashes in small wooden dishes. But if you wish her grateful prayer, give her a haggis. But I wouldn't like to leave anyone with the impression that it's all about the haggis. Plenty of other savoury food. Beef, for example. And I found a little bit of writing by the philosopher David Hume from the 1770s about how, when he retired from writing philosophy books, he took to cooking, for which he claimed to have a great talent, especially where his fine beef and cabbage, which he called a charming dish, was concerned. Nobody excels me, he says, at cooking that. And I also make a sheep's head broth in a manner that Mr. Keith speaks of for eight days after, and the Duke de Nivalnois would bind himself apprentice to my lass to learn it. And then at the posh end of the scale there's grouse, of course, the grouse shooting season being from the beginning of August right through until Christmas. People take to the Scottish moors to shoot the poor birds, which are then roasted or stewed in casseroles, considered apparently the king of feathered game in Scotland. And I know too that when James Boswell was hosting his friend Samuel Johnson in Scotland, he was very keen to serve what he referred to as our Scotch muirfowl or grouse, because that was very much in season. I think Johnson enjoyed that, although Boswell went on to explain that he also offered him some speldings, which were salted fish, dried in the sun, and viewed by Boswell as really quite a treat. But not, as it turned out, 
one that his guest particularly enjoyed. Quote, I insisted on scottifying his palate, but he was very reluctant. With difficulty, I prevailed on him to let a little bit of one of them lie in his mouth. He did not like it. So then, there's beef, there's grouse, and another dish which has a claim perhaps to be the national dish, certainly which is viewed as a true Scottish classic, is mince and tatties. Tatties, if you didn't know, being potatoes. So traditionally ground beef, stewed perhaps with carrots or celery, and served with mashed potato, an inexpensive comfort food, and one which sometimes comes top in a poll of the country's favourite dishes. Then there are stovies. To stove is to stew something, usually potatoes with onions and meat. A warm, filling dish, often eaten after the weekend to make use of whatever was left from the Sunday roast, and coming in two versions as explained on the Scotsman website. Quote, the simpler barefoot or barfit stovies are made solely with potatoes and onions, stewed in roast dripping, whereas the so-called high healers include plenty of meat. And, still on the theme of leftover dishes, there's the wonderfully named rumbledy thumps. Originally a dish devised in the Scottish borders, but one you might find on menus in somewhere that serves traditional food. I realised when I read the ingredients that actually we down south have our own picturesque name for a dish that's quite similar, and that's bubble and squeak, because rumbledy thumps are cabbage and onion, fried in butter, and mixed with mashed potato. Moving on to scotch pie a pastry pie with a filling. A filling which, in fact, is often a closely guarded secret. Various butchers and households will have their own version. Experts agree that often what's inside includes lamb, but more detail we cannot give. So your best hope is to buy one. You might find them in shops, and you will find them being served as half-time snacks at rugby and football matches. Scottish cuisine is very well known for its soup too, scotch broth of course, lamb meat, pearl barley, vegetables, traditionally served on New Year's Day. And again, we have evidence that Samuel Johnson tasted and very much enjoyed Scotch broth as served to him by his host in Scotland, Boswell, who wrote of the occasion, quote, At dinner, Johnson ate several platefuls of Scotch broth with barley and peas in it and seemed very fond of the dish. I said, you never ate it before. And Johnson said, no, sir, but I don't care how soon I eat it again. And the other equally well-known Scottish soup is cockaleeky. Rooster and leek soup, also very traditional, said in fact to date right back to the 16th century. In olden times it was more of a two-course treat, the soup and the meat being eaten separately, but today it's more of a one-pot meal. And served on April 14th, 1912, aboard the ill-fated ship the Titanic, where it was one of the two choices of soup on the menu at first-class luncheon. We ought too to mention the tatty scone, or as I saw it described somewhere, potato scone for anyone who's not fluent in Scots. Exactly what it sounds like, mashed potatoes, butter and flour, rolled into a cake and fried. Likely to turn up if you order a full Scottish fry-up at breakfast, or as part of a mini version with perhaps just a poached egg. Fish, we must mention fish. Scottish salmon, of course, in a league of its own, served poached or smoked or as part of something called tweed kettle, which is salmon poached alongside herbs, perhaps spring onions, maybe some potatoes or mushrooms. If you're wondering where the strange name comes from, it's quite easy to explain. The River Tweed is one of Scotland's great salmon rivers, 
and the kettle refers to the traditional fish kettle in which it would be poached. Something you may well see on menus in Edinburgh, Cullen skink, which is actually a fish soup made with smoked haddock, potatoes and leek. Ideally, said the website I consulted, it would be made with Finnan haddie, which is cold smoked haddock from Aberdeenshire. Again, the name refers to a place, the Scottish town of Cullen in Murray, on the northeast coast. I didn't manage to unravel what the skink part means, but I can say that it's a classic soup served in quite a number of restaurants, and which I saw somewhere described as the perfect dish to warm you from the inside should our somewhat unpredictable weather decide to take a turn for the worst. It absolutely should be mopped up with bread so that you can get every last drop. And by way of a change, there's part and brie, crab soup, a bisque, if you will, for which the ingredients are not just crab, but also rice and cream. Sticking with fish, then there are Arbroath Smokies, haddock which has been salted and dried and then smoked in a barrel over a hardwood fire. A recipe devised as a way of sending Scottish fishermen off on their long journeys with some sustenance that was going to last the journey. Traditionally, they would be headed and gutted in Arbroath and sold tied in pairs with a piece of string on their tails. Lobster's another fishy Scottish delicacy, as is the fish supper, which is basically fish and chips, but served Scottish style, which means you'll be offered a choice of fish and chips with salt and sauce, or fish and chips with salt and vinegar. The sauce part being a brown vinegary sauce, your choice obviously, but said to be the done thing in Edinburgh. The Scottish climate gets much comment, but one thing you can say about it is, it's good for cheese making. So there are lots of traditional Scottish cheeses, varying from cheddars to creamy varieties, blue cheeses. Look out for varieties such as Ayrshire Dunlop or Orkney Smoked Cheddar. And if you order in a restaurant, you'll probably find your cheese board comes with oatcakes and chutney. Crowdy is a traditional Scottish fresh cheese, said to have been brought to the country by the Vikings in the 8th century. A soft white cheese with a vaguely sour flavour which might have herbs or oatmeal or black peppercorns to flavour it. And then Scotland's oldest cheese is something called Cabock, dating from the 15th century, a rich cream cheese served rolled into little logs and often coated with oatmeal. Let's move on to the sweet stuff, starting perhaps with heather honey. So honey from the Scottish moorlands, produced by the honeybees which feed on the fragrant purple flowers of the heather plant. They only flower for a few weeks in late August and early September, so it's really seen as quite the delicacy, a dark-coloured honey, very fragrant. One of the best-known puddings is something called Kralichen, a recipe devised originally to make good use of the raspberries which grow so abundantly in parts of Scotland. I've seen it described as the king of Scottish desserts, a lovely mix of toasted oatmeal, raspberries, cream and honey all layered up in a dish, and a little similar to, but not the same as, Tipsy Laird, which is the Scottish version of trifle, flavoured of course not with sherry, but with whiskey or perhaps drumbuey. Again, raspberries and cream, but also probably sponge cake, egg custard and raspberry jam. And these two, so Cranachan and Tipsy Laird, are both winners to be served on occasions like Burns Night, or indeed at Christmas or New Year. Presumably all of that, a more recent tradition, after the invention of freezers, one imagines that before that, both Cranachan and Tipsy Laird would have been summer puddings. 
Another celebration sweet treat is something known as the clouty dumpling. Clouty being the Scots word for cloth, because your dumpling, traditionally at least, would have been boiled, wrapped up in cloth. So a mix of flour and breadcrumbs and dried fruit, suet, a little sugar and spices, bound with milk or perhaps golden syrup, and served, originally at least, as a sort of alternative to a fruit cake. It's a filling, heavy pudding, so served perhaps more in winter than in summer, and particularly during the daft days, so the period between Christmas and New Year, when there was feasting and celebration. Sometimes used for the custom of hiding something significant in the pudding and seeing who would get it and what that meant for their future. So if somebody bit on a coin, that would show that they were going to be wealthy. But there were other symbols too, a ring signifying marriage, or if marriage wasn't likely, a button or a thimble to signify bachelorhood or spinsterhood. Sometimes a little mini horseshoe to show that good luck was coming the diner's way. We must mention the great Scottish tradition of afternoon tea, making good use of dundee cake and shortbread and various other goodies, and described rather wonderfully by Ludwig Kennedy, who had an Edinburgh grandma, and wrote about long-ago days in the 1920s when he was taken to visit her for tea. Quote, What a tea! Two silver teapots, one for China and one for Indian tea, and a silver kettle resting on a flame from a spirit lamp toast and a honeycomb of heather honey, treacle scones, drop scones, ordinary scones, oat cakes, shortbread, gingerbread and butter, long pats for the salted butter, round for the unsalted, or was it the other way about? And yes, shortbread, a rich, crumbly, very Scottish biscuit made in fact from traditionally anyway from only three ingredients, flour, sugar and butter. Originally, because it was quite expensive to make, reserved for special occasions, Christmas, Hogmanay, but nowadays much more widely enjoyed. And, quote, a great addition to a Burns night supper, served with raspberries and local honey, or alongside Cranachan, or with teas and coffees, to end the evening on a sweetly Scottish note. There's a particular version of shortbread known as petticoat tails, little delicate fan-shaped biscuits, said to be designed following the pattern of pieces of fabric used to decorate petticoats in the 16th century, as worn, for example, by Mary, Queen of Scots, who is said, incidentally, to have been very fond of them. Then there is the black bun, also known as the Scotch bun, another festive treat, a kind of fruitcake wrapped in pastry, also said to have been introduced when Mary, Queen of Scots, returned to Scotland from France, originally enjoyed on Twelfth Night, these days more likely to be found at Hogmanay. A very spicy filling, think dried fruit, almonds, orange and lemon peel, ginger, cinnamon and black pepper. Also, where England has the Bakewell tart, Scotland too has a little butter tart named after a town, a Scottish town, obviously, with a fairly unpronounceable name, Ecclefechin. So the Ecclefechin butter tart, it's filled with dried fruits and nuts, brown sugar, and, as I saw written somewhere, some people even had candied cherries. More biscuits, very Edinburgh biscuits this time, known as Parley's, which is short for Parliament Cakes, originating in 18th century Edinburgh, when a certain Mrs Flockhart used to sell them in her shop. The name coming from the fact that they were particularly enjoyed by the gentry and members of the Scottish Parliament. Little biscuits made with syrup, flavoured with ground ginger originally square in shape and served with a tot of whisky 
although today I think you're more likely to find them served with cups of tea. Still on the biscuit theme, something extremely Scottish, Tunnock's Tea Cakes, the tea cake being a shortbread biscuit with a dome of soft meringue on top, all covered in milk chocolate. And you don't make these, you buy them. They are made by Tunnock's, the family-owned bakery. Very distinctive in the shops, sold wrapped in red and silver tinfoil packaging. I must mention too the infamous deep-fried Mars bar, said to be a Scottish delicacy, invented apparently by the staff in a fish and chip shop in Stonehaven. They had batter, they had hot oil for frying fish and chips. Why not dip a Mars bar in the batter, they thought, and fry it in the same oil? The idea caught on. You can buy it in chip shops in other parts of Scotland. It's even been known to turn up, apparently, in Canada and Australia. I think it would be fair to say that many Scots do have a sweet tooth, and in addition to all the things already mentioned, there is tablet, which is the Scottish relative of the English fudge, dates back to the 18th century, when sugar began to arrive in the islands in any quantity, and it's made of sugar, condensed milk and butter, spread in trays to go cold and then cut up into little squares. Much crumblier than fudge, but just as sweet. Said, in fact, to be quite addictive. The other very Scottish sweet that I've spotted is Edinburgh Rock, very different from the rock you can buy south of the border, a crumbly version, so made with lots of sugar and some flavouring. Pastel in colour, pale pink, lemon yellow, white, peach coloured. You'll see little tartan boxes of it all over Edinburgh, and indeed the rest of Scotland. Having started my rundown of Scottish food with one of the big blockbusters, namely haggis, let's finish with another, namely oats, porridge oats. So popular in Scotland that when Dr Johnson was writing his dictionary, this is the definition he gave. Oats, he said, are a grain which in England is generally given to horses, but in Scotland supports the people. This was written up by his Scottish friend, James Boswell, who tells us that he replied, I, and that's why England has such fine horses, and Scotland such fine people. Oats have always been a mainstay of the diet in Scotland, particularly in the past, as described by one Alexander Somerville, writing in the 1820s. We lived meagrely in the bothy, oatmeal porridge of small measure and strength in the mornings, with sour duke, a kind of buttermilk peculiar to Edinburgh, potatoes and salt, and occasionally a herring for dinner, and sour duke and oatmeal for supper. We never had butcher's meat, and seldom any bread. It's still a Scottish staple, particularly in the form of porridge, ideal against winter chills, and eaten in various ways. Some people like it sweet, so with sugar or honey or fruit on top, other people prefer it salty. Some make it with milk, some with water. The ancestor of porridge, right up until the 18th century, was something called brose, which was oatmeal soaked in boiling water or milk, perhaps with a little butter stirred in. And it was a staple food for Scottish soldiers, who would be sent off on active service with a bag of oatmeal, so that when they had time and could find some water, they could boil it and prepare brose as a meal, perhaps eaten by itself, perhaps with whatever additions of vegetables or nettle tops they could find. No description of things to eat and drink in Scotland would be complete without the national drink, the largest export, whisky. Evidence for which there is in Europe right back to the 12th century, and in Scotland, the 15th century, when it's known, for example, that the king, James IV, 
ordered enough malt to make 500 bottles of what he called Aqua Vitae, the water of life. It was really the monks who distilled the earliest whisky in Scotland, but that died out when Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries, and Scots began then to make it themselves at home. Originally it was thought of more as a medicine, until they began to realise that it could be an enjoyable drink too. Everyone made their own, it was always a little different, you never knew quite what you were going to get, but in the early 19th century, along came a grocer from Kilmarnock, one John Walker, who decided he was going to put more time and thought into it. He began to devise a recipe so that whisky would always taste the same. It was very popular, sold extremely well, and the rest, as they say, is history. Today, it's a little more complicated than that. The taste of whisky is affected by various things, what grain you use, what cask you mature it in, how long for, etc. And the upshot is that Scotland now produces a huge variety of whiskies, described on the John Walker website as everything from the bold smokiness of West Coast malts to the gentler flavours of Highland whiskies. Whisky production is quite a long, drawn-out process, explained on John Walker's website, and consisting essentially of five different stages. There's malting, where you take the barley or the grain and add hot water so the seeds will germinate and sugars will be produced. Then you have to dry it in a kiln. Sometimes peat is used at this stage, and if it is, there'll be a particular smoky flavour to that whisky. So the dried cereal is then ground in a mill, and then comes stage three, namely fermentation. So mixing it with more hot water to create a hot, sweet liquid, to which yeast is added, so that fermentation will take place, creating a kind of beer which will then have to be, stage four, distilled. So boiled in a large copper vat, which is called a still, rendering it down and making the flavour much more intense, at which point it will be ready for the last stage, maturing. So it's transferred to casks, usually made of oak, left for a minimum of three years, until finally the product is worthy of the name of whisky. If, while you're in Edinburgh, you want to find out a whole lot more about whisky, then you can visit the Johnny Walker shop in Princes Street in Edinburgh, where you can, of course, buy whisky and a whole lot of other whisky-based souvenirs, but where you can also enjoy what they describe as an immersive experience in the top-floor Explorer's Bothy, which is a bar, really, with a rooftop view of Edinburgh Castle. Not any old bar, obviously, but one which stocks all the most sought-after whiskies from the whole of Scotland, and where you can enjoy a pre-booked whisky tasting if you go in the daytime, or go in the evening to enjoy the whisky-themed bar. There is an abundance of information on the Johnny Walker website, I'll put the address in the show notes, about all the different types of whisky you can buy there, and the fact that many of the names which are places in Scotland are famous across the globe because of the whisky which they produce. Just to give an indication of the wealth of information that's up there, there is, for example, a section on Highland whiskies, as distinct from Island or Speyside or Lowland whisky. And Highland whiskies have names like Brora, Balater, Oban, the Black Isle. And for each of those places, there's a little introduction to the place itself, followed by some information about the whisky they produce and some recommendations. So, for example, Oban. Here's what they write about that. Since 1794, the town of Oban has grown up with a distillery proudly located at its heart. It goes on to explain that it's a pretty seaside town where you can climb up Battery Hill and on a clear day get wonderful views of Carrera and Mull and that, 
quote, the town is a magnet for the west coast of Scotland's keenest holidaymakers, who flock to its shores for not only the world-class whisky, but also some of Scotland's finest seafood, ice cream and general seaside fun. So, an introduction to Oban itself then, and then information that there are six types of whisky produced in Oban. They're all listed. So there's Little Bay, for example, which is 43% alcohol and will taste of floral herbs, candied orange and ginger. There's the Old Teddy Distillery Exclusive, 51% alcohol and tasting of citrus peels, sticky toffee and dried peach. Also on the website, there are recommendations for whiskey cocktails. Think whiskey highball, that's with mint, sparkling water and a lemon garnish. Or a whiskey sour made in a cocktail shaker with an egg white base, giving you a silky smooth drink with a rich creamy texture. And also, very Scottish this, hot toddy, described as being perfect for wet, cold weather and having medicinal qualities. I think that's roughly whiskey, hot water, honey and possibly lemon juice. And I think you'll find that if you are unlucky enough to be under the weather during your stay in Edinburgh, somebody will offer you a hot toddy. And as an aside, there's also a Scottish liqueur created from Scotch whisky, namely Drambuey, a secret blend of aged Scottish whisky, honey, herbs and spices, named from an unpronounceable Scots Gaelic phrase, which has got the words dram and buey in it, which means apparently the drink that satisfies. And Drambuey has a history all of its own, dating back allegedly to the 18th century, when Bonnie Prince Charlie, or Prince Charles Edward Stuart, had his own recipe which he passed down to the MacKinnon clan, one of whom, one Malcolm MacKinnon, although this was in 1914, so getting on for 200 years later, I'm not really sure how true it is. Anyway, Malcolm MacKinnon is said to have registered it as a trademark and founded the Drambuey Liqueur Company in Edinburgh. Still going strong today, Drambuey can be drunk neat or with ice, it blends well into cocktails, including, for example, one called Rusty Nail, which is, according to the website anyway, an American classic dating back to the Prohibition era. And then, just to finish off, two amusing items which I found on the Culture Trip website, the first of which describes a very Scottish drink known as Iron Brew, I-R-N-B-R-U, and opens its description with the following question. What is luminous orange in colour and caresses your throat like a lover as it slithers down your gullet. The answer, of course, is Iron Brew, which, says the Culture Trip website, is, quote, more ubiquitous in Scotland than Coca-Cola, and comprises 32 secret ingredients. There's much disagreement among connoisseurs as to what it tastes like. Bubblegum, rust, cough syrup, salty banana, liquefied casual violence, and heaven are just some of the comparisons. You try you decide. And also on the website is this nice little summary of Scottish cuisine. Some dishes are steeped in centuries of tradition and turbulent history. Others are steeped in deep-fried batter. Scottish cuisine draws on the natural bounty of its coastal waters, moors and craggy peaks to produce dishes as memorable as they are flavourful, with the national firewater, whisky, providing a potent accompaniment to belly-filling classics. I don't know whether the person who wrote that entry on the Culture Trip website is Scottish or not, but I hope that any Scots listening will feel that that does indeed do justice to their wonderful cuisine in all its variety. 
Okay, so that's it really for Scottish food for today. It's almost the end of the Edinburgh series, just one to go, namely an anthology piece in two weeks' time, for which I have collected lots of bits and pieces written by Scots authors or written by others who set their works in Edinburgh, and which I hope will round off the series nicely. So it remains then for me to just thank you very much for listening and to say goodbye, obviously in Gaelic. Here goes. Tapa leave, Agus, Martian leave. <laughs>